Yeah. 50 years of hip hop. 50 years of hip hop from Listener Power, KEXP. You're listening to 50 Years of Hip Hop. Larry Mysell Jr. is out this week. I'm Roddy Nickfor. This week, we're talking about the art of sampling in hip hop, which reached new levels in 1990. That's when we heard iconic tracks from MC Hammer, A Tribe Called Quest, Public Enemy, and Vanilla Ice, each of them incorporating iconic samples. There is a lot to unpack with the culture of sampling, as well as the misconceptions behind the craft. I'm bringing in Chris Reed for this episode. He's a DJ and producer based in London. Peeking into his house through the video call, you understand immediately why he's a go-to expert on sampling. I mean, I mean, <laughs> how many years of vinyl is on that wall? I mean, in terms of collecting, um, I don't know, maybe 30 or something. Chris is also the head of content for the website and app called Who Sampled, which has grown from one person's passion project to a crowdsourced Wikipedia-like authority on what samples are used across all kinds of music. We use it all the time here at KEXP. Now, it's impossible to track down the very first use of sampling in hip-hop, or in any kind of music for that matter, but I refer you to our episode on The Breaks by Curtis Blow. When DJs started spinning The Breaks, hip-hop had a standard. The same things kept on appearing in lots of records. You know, the funky drummer drums, I know you want to talk about those, or a little shout or a squeal. Like, I understood that all of these artists were kind of utilizing this same set of sounds, but in each case using them differently. In the late 80s, digital music made it even easier than ever for artists to get their hands on the music they loved, thanks to the invention of digital samplers and CDs. You know, from that point onwards, people just went wild with all the James Brown samples and stuff, but felt like there was a moment around 89 when people just sort of branched out away from that and started looking outside the, the perception at the time of what hip-hop should sound like. Today, I want to talk through the culture of sampling in hip-hop, something that we take for granted, and we're going to do it through the lens of four standout singles that came out in 1990. MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby, A Tribe Called Quest's Can I Kick It, and Public Enemies Fight the Power. Can't touch this. You can't touch this. You know, I remember hearing MC Hammer's You Can't Touch can't This. Touch and, you know, it's a, it's a bop, it's a catchy song. It was kind of my first instance where I heard a song and I thought it was great. And then I heard Super Freak some years later. She's a very kinky girl. The kind you don't take home to mother. And I was like, oh, like they're using MC Hammer's song. That's really cool. And then, you know, I didn't realize that, like, obviously it was backwards, right? Yeah. Super Freak is sampled in MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. Yeah. I mean, I think that experience is different for different people. And it obviously will depend on the music you grew up around uh, and, and so on. So I think like my, my folks had pretty broad music taste and my mum had some kind of soul and Motown records and stuff around the house when I was a kid. So I knew a few like Isaac Hayes and James Brown records and stuff. And when I heard hip hop, I would recognize those. But then in most cases, the discovery was in reverse. I heard the hip hop music first and then later discovered the origins. I 
didn't know the Rick James song when I first heard MC Hammer. I, much like you, I just kind of took it at face value that that was his song and it was like a catchy pop tune. Break it down. You Can't Touch This won numerous awards and accolades, including a Grammy for the best R&B song. And not just for the music video featuring those famous baggy hammer pants. Stop. Hammer time. MC Hammer didn't just earn recognition for his pants. It was that funky bass line, which actually comes from Rick James. So it comes as no surprise that Rick James sued MC Hammer. As part of a settlement, MC Hammer had to list Rick James as a songwriter, which meant that Rick James saw some of the money from the royalties. Because copyright, right? That leads us to this song, one of the most famous examples of copyright. Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. This was the first hip-hop song that ever peaked on the Billboard Hot 100. And by the way, there's a lot to be said about a white rapper being the first one to top the charts in a genre created by black culture. But we've seen this one before. Through some combination of white privilege, money, a catchy beat, Vanilla Ice was on his way to stardom. But there was one problem. That catchy hook in Ice Ice Baby was lifted pretty much directly from the Queen and David Bowie song, Under Pressure. If I remember rightly, I think it was ultimately settled out of court. But yeah, I mean, you could paint settling as losing, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It depends where exactly where the where the line lies but yeah i mean i think the thing that made it famous was the kind of the fact that he kind of argued that it wasn't <laughs> when it clearly was it's not the same baseline uh like it goes ding 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 that's the way theirs goes ours goes ding 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 vanilla ice walked back his argument a little bit understanding why queen and david bowie threatened legal action of course, he did so in a somewhat braggadocious way, given the commercial success of his song. Rap music is sampling. And people who don't understand rap music, they say, well, he borrows this or steals this. Rap music, every major rap artist in the world samples music, you know? And that's all I did, sample it. If my record 10 years from now went number one, I would say, yo, give me a piece of that, you know? That's all, I mean, and I don't blame him at all. And uh, especially if it sells five million copies. You know, plat platinum records, a lot for rap. And I sold five platinum. All they wanted was credit. All they wanted was credit, and that's all we gave them, you know? Sample by David Bowie and Queen. It's no big deal. You know, it's still my song. I wrote it, produced it. It's Vanilla Ice. That's a good segue into the one of the other tracks I wanted to talk about, which is Can I Kick It by Tribe Called Quest. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Can I kick it? That was a backwards thing for me where I knew Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. And I think at that point, I was a little indignant when I heard it because I was like, no, they're like ripping off like Lou Reed without like saying it is, you know. <laughs> said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Because I didn't understand at some point, like, this is how hip hop is, right? Not just hip hop, but this is how music is. And I want to come back to that larger point. But, um, but it's, I mean, now I can, you know, say that's very tastefully done. 
I mean, in terms of like the actual sample usage and the stories around it, the famous one obviously is that Lou Reed has like 100% publishing on that record. So, you know, it, it, it's from that era when there had been some copyright cases and there had been some samples cleared, but it was still a bit of a kind of gray area. There hadn't been too much happened in terms of, you know, court actions or clearances and that sort of thing at that point. So there were records that had been released without clearances in place. And, and from my understanding, that was one of them. So they ended up uh, dealing with Lou Reed after the event. I guess, uh, you know, I read an interview with Fife Dog, rest in peace, obviously, um, where he was commenting about it. And, and he seemed quite sort of resigned to what it was. Like it was a big record for them. It put them on the map, but they didn't really make any money out of it. You know, which on one, on one level is unfair, but the worst case scenario or the worst scenario could have been that it never came out at all because, because yeah, Lou Reed, uh, you know, wouldn't let them. And, and he had subsequently been quite complimentary of hip hop in more general terms in later interviews and stuff. And, um, probably made some quite good money off off Can I Kick It, um, which you know, argue, you could argue, try really deserved a piece of that. But for better or for worse, we still got to hear the record. So you know, I mean, I think I think that that's a theme I've, I feel like I've been seeing throughout this podcast is like <laughs> white people being indignant about hip hop's existence and its rise, and then when it starts making money. They're like, yeah, it's pretty good. Like hip hop's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, there's de- there's definitely there's definitely some of that at play. Um, not going to name any names, but there are certainly other artists who have gone through that thought process. I think. People have been borrowing and reworking ideas from other musicians and creatives for as long as there's been music you know i mean that's how folk music happens is you know like a song gets passed down through generations and one generation changes the lyrics to be about something that's more relevant to their lives than the previous generation's lives or a melody gets reworked into another song what i want to know mr football man is what do you do about willie mays martin luther king and you can see examples of this all across the history of music, classical music, you know. Classical composers would take another composer's composition and, and make their own arrangements of it or things like this, you know. All this stuff's been happening forever, essentially. And copyright laws is a comparatively new thing. Copyright is largely around protecting something that's written. You know, sheet music, for example, is protected by copyright and that works reasonably well. But it's horribly out of step with the way that music is made in 2023. Which is that, you know, everyone's got access to a computer. Millions of people across the world are making music through found sounds from older records or from sample packs they've bought online or a combination of the two. And copyright law isn't really kind of in step with that. Um, and it's oddly sort of inconsistent as well in that it's administratively much easier, for example, to record a cover version than it is to sample a small bit of a record, which is sort of counterintuitive. You're allowed to copy someone's entire song, but there are very difficult rules to navigate if you just copy a little bit of it. These things are not really in step with how music is made. And, and I think most people who are making 
music or sample-based music would welcome some changes that kind of bring things, you know, into the, into the present day. It's not without its complications. I mean, obviously, if you if you have written or recorded a song, you don't want someone else to just, you know, take that wholesale. So there needs to be some structure around it, but it, it it's just something that doesn't really, it's not really very well accommodated by the law as it is. But what I would also say is that shouldn't give people the impression that um, they need to be terrified of copyright law all the time, you know there's a degree of common sense kind of prevailing over a lot of this stuff. You know, lots of people are making music containing samples and releasing it through YouTube and, you know, other Bandcamp or, or wherever else. And and that's largely fine, you know, insofar as copyright owners are savvy enough, I think, to know that a big sample by a major artist needs to be cleared and that a lot of this other activity, in actual fact, can just live and to some extent it, it, it even kind of helps them in that it kind of makes people more aware of this music that otherwise would not be getting much attention and there's loads of examples of that in kind of the, the more popular end of the spectrum timmy thomas and drake's hotline bling is another one you know like absolutely no doubt that the streaming numbers for the timmy thomas records have experienced a, a, a boost and his career had a kind of late renaissance off the back of the popularity of that record. You used to call me on my cell phone Late night when you need my love To your point about like all of music is and always was just recycling other stuff whether it was a direct cover, borrowing a melody it's all a form of sampling I guess you could say, right? And so in terms of the common sense aspect I've seen some artists try to, like, play up who they're sampling. I think one of the most interesting examples I heard was Odessa's The Last Goodbye. They don't just say featuring Betty Levette. Like, they list Betty Levette as a co-artist on the song, which just samples her vocals. You know, that may be a conditional requirement of their clearance. You know, they want to make sure that... You know, again, and it speaks to labels kind of understanding the power of having that music rediscovered. By the way, this is all strongly related to a conversation we had on another KEXP podcast, Sound and Vision. Last year, we were talking about Beyonce's album Renaissance, and Larry had this really good point to make about the critics. Well, mostly the white critics who saw it as a weakness for Beyonce to list so many songwriters on her tracks. This is a very raucous kind of thing of like, why are there so many songwriters on here? And it's just like, there should have been more songwriters on the joints that you think are canon, like the Beatles. There should have been a lot more songwriters credited on that. Hip hop and R&B understands that music is building upon the shoulders of the people that came before you. It comes from a sample culture, you know what I mean? And it's 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 reverent of what came before. I mean, you're a DJ, right? I mean, what's the joy to you in sampling, you know, because it's so, it's everywhere, right? You know, what's the joy as a DJ and a listener to you with sampling? I mean, you could ask 10 people and get 10 different answers to that, I think. If you look at the big, like, very commercial end of hip-hop, the reason they're sampling is to kind of evoke the the vibe and the energy and and sometimes the catchiness and familiarity of that original record. You can't touch this. 
But then if you look at very underground hip hop, it's, it's, it's the opposite. They're trying to find something that no one's ever sampled before and no one would recognize. And then if you look at the more sort of technical side of production, whether it be in hip hop or anything else, people are sometimes looking not really for the vibe of the original or to make any kind of reference to the original necessarily, but just to find stuff that can be kind of used as your palette of sounds. When it comes to groups in the 90s that had their palette of sounds defined super well, you know we couldn't end this episode about sampling without a word to public enemies fight the power. Playback! This is a distinguished example for multiple reasons. First, that music video. Part performance, part real protest in the streets of Brooklyn in 1989. The other magic in this track is that it samples upward of 20-something different songs. James Brown, the Isley Brothers, Syl Johnson. So many samples that converge so seamlessly to create a composition that sounds entirely original. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone could reasonably listen to a record like Public Enemies Fight the Power and have any standing to argue that that is not a great piece of art. Just the actual construction of the song from 20-plus samples. I mean, you can recognize what the samples are if you know the records, but... What they become is something that's entirely different to everything that they sample. You know, the, the end result is something that's totally new. With sampling is that it always, to some extent, deliberate. You know, I mean, you chose particular, even, even if you didn't mean to copy a particular song, you chose the sounds that you built your palette from for your song for a particular reason. So all of those are deliberate choices. Whereas more broadly, I think we just are constantly influenced by everything we hear. You know, you know if, you, if you play or write music, it's an absolute inevitability that you, the way that you do that is going to have been influenced by all the music you've heard previously. You, you can't help but be influenced by the music that, you, that you've heard. Um, it's just kind of part of the way our brain works. Fundamentally, the, the art form itself has just, you know, endless potential and people are forever, especially with the advanced technology at the moment, people are forever doing more and more creative things and, and finding new ways to just completely change sounds. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly excited to hear new sample-based music and what it, what it can be. I feel like I've learned a lot from you from this, so I, I'm really thankful. I hope that... <laughs> oh, well, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. No, it's always, always nice to chat about this stuff. I think the stakes were a lot higher back in the 90s when digital sampling technology was still so new and people were more guarded with their intellectual property. Of course, people are still guarded, but the internet has really opened up Pandora's box on this. As Chris said, no single law in the US or England or anywhere can police the use of samples across the entirety of the internet and therefore the world. And to whatever extent that law tries to do that, it still has to deal with a delicate balance of protecting the market value of art and stifling creative young minds so profoundly inspired by those who came before. And back in 1990, before the internet really took off, those four artists decided not to let the copyright law hold them back. 
and instead follow their creative vision. They truly f***ed around and found out. Big thanks to Chris Reed for joining us in this episode. You can learn more about his work as a DJ and producer at musicofsubstance.com. And I also recommend you check out whosampled.com as a resource to dive into the nitty gritty of who sampled what. And finally, I have to shout out our very own Larry Mizell Jr. for hosting OG Thursdays. Every Thursday on the afternoon show, Larry picks an artist and then showcases original songs, music that inspired them, and of course, tracks where they're sampled. Again, that's every Thursday on the afternoon show, streaming from 1 to 4 p.m. Pacific time at kexp.org and anytime at kexp.org slash archive. Isabel Khalili manages this podcast. I'm Roddy Nickpour in for Larry Mizell Jr. We'll see you next time on 50 Years of Hip Hop from listener-powered KEXP, where the samples matter.